Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. One of the best ways to inspire people is to share your own story and show them how you succeeded, even if sometimes the odds were against you. My guest today is forensic pathologist, Dr. Douglas Posey, and this is exactly what he has done. Dr. Posey has written a book about his experiences, and it's called From Mississippi to the Morgue, A Black Doctor's Journey from Rural Mississippi to Forensic Pathology. Today, we're going to talk all about that book and hear about Dr. Posey's journey into laboratory medicine and pathology. Here's Dr. Douglas Posey. We're mostly going to talk about your book, which is called From Mississippi to the Morgue. It's essentially your autobiography. Is that does that sound about right? Basically, uh, yeah, an autobiography. It describes my, you know, my struggles, mm-hmm. my movement, you know, from Mississippi around the world. So it is autobiographical. Then let's let's start there. What, like, how did you decide this was the right time for you to write a book and to and to write it, you know, about yourself? Dennis, I practiced hospital-based pathology for twenty. 21 years, I believe. Nice, clean environment. I wore my long white coat and shirt and tie each day. Then in the year 2000, I took leave of my senses and left the private practice of pathology, entered into a forensic pathology fellowship and practiced forensic pathology, you know, as a medical examiner for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And the things that I saw, the emotions, the emotional roller coasters, looking at young people who had died, who had not even begun to live, it was it was quite a moving experience. So I began to reflect back, and I was wondering what would have eventually happened to me. Where would I have gone? Where would I have ended up? had Knox Coach Hicks came to my mother's house, instructed her to pack my clothes, and drove me to Utica Junior College. When you have that kind of support and people who care about you, people who literally turn your life around, and then you deal with these, but deal with death every day, Mm-hmm. It's it it changes you. So my idea was to use the book as a passageway, uh, as a ticket, if you will, to try to get in front of young men, I- irrespective of the group, one on one, two on two, as many as would show up, to try to impart some of the encouragement that the Coach Hicks and Coach Page imparted on me. There were times when I thought that I would have quit or that I would have gone the wrong path or that I would have just packed the tent. But I would think about what Coach Hicks and Coach Page did, and I would suck it up, whatever was going on, and continue because I felt that I owed it to them. Then I begin to wonder, Dennis, how many young people out there are there that's available for that kind of help if someone took the time to go and get them, or if someone took the time to go by their parents' house, if someone took the time to literally, as Coach Page did, drive me the 100 miles from my mother's door to Utica Junior College. So it, the whole effort, I guess, to sum it up was to, I guess the the, the vernacular these days is to pay it forward. Mm-hmm. But I always felt like I owed a debt of gratitude to both Coach Hicks and Coach Page. Okay, and we're going to talk about both of them a little bit later on. You know, right towards the beginning of the book, I think it's right at in the introduction. There's a there's a quote, and it says, "When I look back at my formative years." especially those first years of college, what I remember most is that I had ample opportunity to fail, but I did not. And this, this quote really 
really struck me and it, it it's really the kind of the theme of the whole book so i'd like to sort of go back in time with that and put that in a little bit of context so let's go back to what was it like growing up in mississippi and what were these opportunities to fail well it was a scary time you know when you're really young you don't think about fear but as i became a teenager and my mother would not go to bed or could not go to sleep until she was sure that I had returned home and was safe. Young men were disappearing, young men of color were disappearing from the community. No one would mention them. No one would talk mm-hmm. about them. Everybody in the world knows about the Emmett Till story up in uh, Money, Mississippi. We had one black funeral director in the community who was killed when I was 11 years of age because he allegedly because he joined the NAACP and we've never had another black funeral director in the community, you know, to this date. So when I started putting, you know, when I got old enough to start putting those kinds of things together, it it was scary. I mean, you could you could disappear. You could be taken away. Someone could come to your your parents' house and literally take you. And when I was old enough, you know, to reflect on that, it was scary. Then I finally graduated high school in 1960. Joined an ex-brother-in-law down in New Orleans and unloaded bananas for just a couple of weeks. Very, very hard work, backbreaking. So that's when I came back home, and that's when Mr. Hicks, Coach Hicks, came by and carried me to Utica Junior College. Now, when I was in small-town Centerville, Mississippi, at Finch High School, I was considered one of the best students on the campus. When I got to Utica Junior College, I began to see not chinks, but holes in my armor. Dennis, you're not supposed to be able to do this. In in four successive semesters, I failed algebra, advanced algebra, trigonometry, and analytic geometry. No no one even said, you you can't do that. Uh, Young man, you got to master basic algebra before you go on. And I eventually struggled, you know, through the night uh, later on, uh, you know, to teach myself enough of the basics of mathematics because that was the problem. I had been taught by example. I didn't know the principles of math. That was an eye-opener. It was shocking because I actually thought that I was a good student. So talking about these these things that, you know, you talk about, uh, young men of color just disappearing and other things that happened. How much of it was, as far as you that not happening to you, how much do you think of that was just luck and how much was kind of, uh, you know, you not putting yourself in those situations? I think it was a combination of, you know, three things. My, my grandmother's prayer, my mother's uh, concern, and the guidance uh, from, you know, from my parents, they let us know and let me in particular know the dangers of growing up uh, a young uh, teenager of color in Centerville, Mississippi. You know, they didn't pull no punches. They made sure that I understood the dangers that I faced. Mm-hmm. And I took it to heart and I tried you know, to satisfy them and to protect myself by doing everything I could to keep myself out of harm's way. Now, you mentioned already uh, kind of two of the biggest mentors in your life. So Coach Wordy Hicks and Coach Roderick Page. And the the concept of mentors and mentoring is something that I cover a lot on this podcast. It's very, it's a very important topic throughout all of all of medicine, all of healthcare. So can you tell me, how, how did you meet these two men and what sort of influence did they have on you? 
Dennis, when in small town Centerville, Mississippi, where I grew up, it would be rare for us to know another individual in the community who had gone to college. So our teachers came in mostly from Louisiana. Coach Hicks came up from Bernice, Louisiana, and he was a graduate of Grambling College. And in the, in the 1956 to 1960, the years I was in high school, there would be no place in Centerville, Mississippi, where a person of color could, say, rent a room or get a hotel or, or stay. So the teachers, out of necessity, boarded uh, rented rooms from our parents. Coach Hicks stayed with my grandmother. And, you know, that put extra pressure on me as a student because uh, now I wanted to make an impression on Mr. Hicks. He had my mother's uh, ear. You know, he would tell her if I didn't do the right thing or if he felt I wasn't working mm-hmm. hard enough. And I admired him. I used to go over to my grandmother's house, you know, just so I could hang around him and be around him. And then I think that's that's one of the reasons when he came to my mother's house to carry me to Utica Junior College, he was painfully honest, had a great big broad life with beautiful white teeth. Hmm. He told he told my mother that he was taking me up to Utica on a package deal. He would get me into school with three other athletes on a scholarship. But okay. he told my mother that he's not going to make the football team or the basketball team. He said I had good hands, but he didn't know anyone in the world that was slower than I was. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, Coach, I wanted to say, Coach, why are you taking me? But he told my mother, he said, of the four, he's the best student. He said, I'm going to put him there, and it's going to be up to him to find a way to stay. Okay. So that was Mr. Hicks' role. He convinced Coach Page to give me a shot with the three athletes. Coach Page agreed to it. And then that's when Coach Page entered my life. And he did some things extraordinary. I used to think about maybe he could have just simply cut me you know, and sent me back home. I went out for the football team and I didn't last through spring training, you know, and uh, he got me, but he allowed me to stay on campus. He found me a job to justify. You had to be an athlete to stay on the campus. He helped me to stay on the campus and told me to come out for the basketball team. Well, I lasted, my stay uh, in basketball practice was shorter than football. Because we had played in my little hometown, we played on the dirt until I was a senior in high school uh, before we ever played in the gymnasium. So I lasted through about three days in basketball practice. And he cut me again, but he came over and he showed me the way to stay in the community to continue to come to, to, to school. Really, really went above and beyond, you know, the call of duty. Do you think you would have gone to college at all, if not for their help? I think that I would have gone the route of many of the young people. I had tried the 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 route, the first route that most of the young people took. 50, 60% of the young people dropped out of high school, the high school that I attended, and went down to Baton Rouge and New Orleans, Louisiana to find work. Okay. Well, I'd already tried that, and it didn't work. The other thing was we had what they called, we affectionately called the modified underground railroad getting out of the South. And that was you find someone up north, preferably a, a relative or, or a friend, or someone you feel like you could get along with long enough to 
help you out until you could find find work. And the debt uh, that you occurred from that was that you had to help the person who called you, you know, from the South. Mm-hmm. So I suspect that I would have gone because my sister, who was a year ahead of me, had already done the same thing and gone to Grand Rapids, Michigan and stayed with uh, relatives until she found a job. And then she had her own apartment. So more than likely, I would have migrated to Michigan and stayed with her and maybe ended up in the, the steel mill or one of the automobile factories. Sometimes it gives me goosebumps when I just think about it. Sure, sure. I can understand that. After college, you, you eventually joined the Army, uh, where this is where you, you were trained in medical technology. Yeah, the Army was really the, the turning point, I believe, uh, one of the major turning points in my life. I'd gone when I did, when I finally qualified for the Bachelor of Science degree in biology at uh, Alcorn State University, I chose to leave without a teaching degree. In 1964, there's precious few things that you can do with a degree in biology without a teaching certificate. Mm-hmm. But I was fortunate enough to find work with Michigan Department of Health Laboratories, and that was my first introduction to the laboratory. On the 5th of May in 1966, I was instructed to go to Detroit, Michigan, to the Armed Forces Enlistment Station. To I had been inducted into the United States Army and went to Fort Knox for basic training. And again, someone shows up in my life. I don't know who this soldier was. I didn't know him then. I didn't find out later, and to this date, I still don't know him. But he pulled me to the side, and he said, what is your background? And I told him that, quickly told him that I had a bachelor's degree in biology, and that I had begun to work with Michigan Department of Health Laboratories. He says, 90% of these people that you're training with are going to Vietnam. This was May 1966. He said, if you don't want to do that, uh, you'd rather not take the chance. Here's what I advise you to do. So he advised me to go and talk to the company clerk and tell him that I would agree to stay longer in the Army than I was obligated if they gave me the school of my choice. And he told me, he said, the school you want, based on your your background, is medical technology at Brook General Hospital, Fort Sam, Houston, Texas. I followed his advice, still don't know who he is, and ended up as a medical technologist. So you didn't have any like previous interests in this field, or did you even know what it was? I kind of knew because when when I was going through the training program at Michigan Department of Health Laboratories, I knew I knew that there was differences between technicians and technologists, but no one ever mentioned uh, you know, the study of, of of medical technology. I was put in my position with that particular laboratory because of the Bachelor of Science degree in biology. So it would I would find out what medical technology was and study it and mm-hmm. become board certified, you know, as you know, at MTA, SCP, uh, right. kind of, kind of on the move. From there, you eventually ended up in, in Germany working in, in blood bank. I spent my last 13 months of three years and four months with the army in Landstuhl, Germany. And much to my surprise, when I got there, Major Fuqua, who's from Pontiac, Michigan, was a pathologist, and he welcomed me with open arms and told me how bad he needed personnel. And I didn't know the full extent of what he meant until I found out that I was the chief cook and bottle washer for the blood bank, at a, and we were operating a thousand beds, didn't it? 
Wow. We were right adjacent to Ramstein Air Base, and they were evacuating uh, injured troops from Vietnam to, to Ramstein. They put them on the ground in ambulance, bring them to Second General Hospital, which stabilized them and send them, uh, send them back to the States. So my fellow soldiers used to get a, a, a big laugh out of the fact that I couldn't leave the compound without checking out with the officer of the day, the MP and the chief of surgery. Because if someone came along and needed a, a, a blood transfusion, you know, then wherever I was, be it uh, at the local pub or, uh, you know, visiting with some young lady, wherever it was, uh, the MPs would come at the request of the chief of surgery, pick me up, take me back to the hospital, you know, to uh, set up a transfusion. I did that for 13 months. Now, coming coming from where you came from, a small town, and now you're, you know, you're there in Germany and you're, as far as blood bank is concerned you're the guy uh, how did that feel to be that important well i had worked uh when i finished the medical technology program i was assigned to the blood bank at brook army medical center and at that time we were also operating a thousand beds and i like the challenge of blood bank dennis there's no in between okay if you do uh say chemistry, somebody might look at the chemistry or look at the sodium. You make an error in sodium determination, somebody looks at it and says, well, my patient don't look like this. This can't be right. Let's check it. Mm -hmm. There are precious few checks, okay? Yeah. When you release that unit of blood from the blood bank, it goes straight up. And into some patient, they check to make sure that the identification is correct. The, that's the that's the challenge. And uh, and because we we we're human, every time we do about ten thousand transfusion, there's one major incompatibility that causes a patient this death. So if you're doing 10,000 a year, you get one death a year. If you're doing 20,000 transfusions, and you can imagine how many transfusions we were doing per year in a thousand bed facility. Right. So it was, it's just challenging, but I love it. I love the, I love the intensity of the work. What about just being in a, a different, different country, a different part of the world? What was that like? That was it was it was a was a brand new experience uh, for me, uh, Dennis. And what I made it a point to get to know the I worked with with German civilians. I made it a point, you know, to get to know them, to interact with them. I visited their homes, and I went. I saw they showed me part of Germany that a lot of our GIs uh, don't see. You know, GI, we, we leave a bad reputation, you know, when we go through. But mm-hmm. they took me off of the beaten path and, you know, showed me the restaurants and the, the good beers and the Venus schnitzels, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Douglas Posey. We'll be right back. LabVine enables improved healthcare by helping labs future-proof, transform careers, and build professional relationships. They do this with tools, solutions, and resources curated from internationally recognized sources. I want to tell you about several new features on LabVine right now. One of them is the Lab Relevance Compass from Jeremy Schubert, who you might remember from episode 65 of this podcast. There's also a webinar that Jeremy did that goes into more detail about the Lab Relevance Compass, which you can find on VineStream. You can also find a couple new courses on communication skills from 2020 Science, and there are several new content experts as part of the ConfLab as well. You can check out LabVine by following the link in the show notes, and you can sign up absolutely free. And while you're there, you can also listen to the People of Pathology podcast right there on my VineStream channel. Dress-A-Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. 
The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Ahmed by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Douglas Posey on the People of Pathology podcast. After the Army, now you're out and you're working as a medical technologist. And then at, at a certain point, you decide you're, you're going to go to medical school. Can you tell me about this? Because this this is an interesting story, how that came about. Well, I, I had tremendous admiration. Uh, one of the uh, pathologists I worked for was John Fennessy at Evangelical Deaconess Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. And, and I thoroughly uh, admired uh, uh, Dr. Fennessy. He'd come into work around 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, go to the lounge, you know, meet and greet the, uh, you know, the surgeons come back, read some slides, you know, from the surgery the following day, sign out a few cases, have lunch, look around. And he, 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 he would leave, he would frequently leave, uh, leave the hospital, you know, in the middle of the day, not in the middle of the day, in the middle of the afternoon. And be gone, you know, for a sustained period of time. And then he would swing back by. And what I found out that he, he was going to law school. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I said, wow, I could really get into that kind of lifestyle. I don't want to study law, but maybe I could go play tennis, uh, go play a round of golf. And then he and I began to talk. And he, it was he who initially brought up the the, the subject of medical school. And, you know, and then I began at this point. Now, I'm seven years post BS degree at this point. But it was that it was just at that point and that point only. That I began to believe, you know, that I could go to medical school and 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 be successful, do whatever it took to pass. Okay, And in the eighth year. 1972, I finished in 1964. In 1972, I was in the freshman class, what we call it the class of 76. But I entered in uh, September of 1972 as a freshman uh, medical student at Wayne State University. And did you always intend to go into pathology, even, even from the beginning? Yes, I did. But here's what I here's what I did, uh, Dennis. I thought it would be unfair to the rest of the disciplines of medicine. Okay, so I never mentioned pathology to anyone during four years of medical school. A gastroenterologist by the name of Dr. Karras came to my apartment. When he found out that I was applying, looking for places to train in medical school, I mean, in, in pathology. And he pleaded with me, Dennis, as God is my witness, I have too many good stories to make up any. He pleaded with me not to go into pathology. I said, Dr. Carries, this is my goal. I have to, he said, you have, you have excellent bedside manners. It's going to be a waste for you to go into pathology. I said, uh, Dr. Carroll, I don't think it will be a waste. And my goal, I came to medical school with a goal to study pathology. I gave every discipline the chance to change my mind. I could have gotten, because of the work and, and my dedication, I could have gotten probably residency training in, uh, in medicine, family medicine, I don't know about surgery because I can't sew, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I could have got I, I could have got into practically most branches of medicine based on you know what I'd done on on my rotations and in in the classes. But I had to tell him he went away. He was very disappointed, man. Mm -hmm. But I told him I said uh, no one changed my mind. I came here to be a pathologist. Four years later. That's what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, of course, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but from what I've heard from people, 
that kind of, you know, the kind of thing of trying to talk you out of pathology. I think that still happens to this day. I, I think it, I think it does. And you, you have to be willing to see we yeah, well, you know this. I don't have to tell you. We're the doctor. We're the doctor for the doctors. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yep. we're not on the front line, you know, being seen and, you know, and greeted by the family and patted on the back. But I don't have a problem with that. Before we get into how you got into forensic pathology, there's a section in the book where you kind of give an overview of medical science and, and pathology. You talk about the different kind of sub subspecialties or sub branches of within pathology as far as anatomic and clinical, and then how, you know, fluids and tissue specimens are processed and analyzed and that, that sort of thing. Why did you include this kind of section in the book? I mean, it seems like this was sort of to inspire others to, to look at this field, to get into this field as well, which is something I try to do with this podcast. Was that, am I, am I interpreting that right? You're interpreting it exactly right. So I wanted to make sure that the readers understood, you know, number one, what pathology is. And I thought if I could give them a little bit of a flavor, you know, and for the multidisciplinary nature of it and maybe drop something in there that they could relate to, uh, you know, when mm-hmm. they've gone to the, to the doctor and they've, you know, see the clinical laboratory report. But yeah, I, w- I was hoping that I would pique some interest in in pathology uh, because we 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 still need uh, young people going into pathology, and we are uh, we we hurting big time in uh, forensic pathology. Yes, actually, I wanted to ask you about that. As far as the, the sh- there's a shortage of <laughs> lab prof- professionals of of all areas as well as pathologists and definitely forensic pathologists. Is this, was this part of the, the reason for the book as well? No, no. Uh, what I wanted to do, Dennis, if, if I could drill down and say that there was one thing that I wanted to do with the book, it would be this. And I don't know how good a job I did. I wanted to get in front of young men of color, hopefully to impart some knowledge and what it means to have a mentor. But I also wanted to tell them that forensic pathology is the hottest topic since Catherine Valeria's cow started the Great Chicago Fire. Okay. And there are 12, 13 specific disciplines. And if I could just get them to take a look at, not encouraging them to go either way, but just impart the knowledge, just make sure they knew about it. Right. I believe that at least some of them would find something in there that they like. Man, we go over DNA, ballistics, uh, you know, crime scene, uh, toxicology, drug chemistry, et cetera, et cetera. I believe yeah. some of them would find something in that that they like. I would say, you know, if you if you like guns, uh, come, you know, let's 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 talk about ballistics. You could tear them down, break them down, shoot them, and do things with them. You know, to make a living. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it, it very much makes sense. Uh, what about you, though, like personally, how did you become interested in forensics? My dear friend, mentor, Dr. Joy Carter, we were both at the historic Howard University, but at different times. Dr. Joy Carter became the first black lady and maybe the first person of color to be the chief medical examiner of a major office in the United States. She was at the Washington, D.C., at their office, and then she came to head up the Harris County Medical Examiner's Office. When I found out that she was the chief, I was, I don't know, I was having some frustrations with 
hospital-based pathology, the way we were going, the we were taking instructions from people who didn't know medicine. And so it's a little bit of a frustration and a little bit of the excitement. I called uh, Dr. Carter to congratulate her, and she told me that she had a spot open, you know, for the next uh, the next year and okay. suggested that maybe I should come in. It would be a good idea if I came and trained with her in forensics and without thinking a, a, a great deal about it and looking for a change, I took the leap. And in two, in the year 2000, I cross trained and became a fellow in forensic pathology at the Harris County medical examiner's office. How was that experience for you? How did that go? That Dennis, when I first started, I used to go home at night trying to reason or trying to come up with a real reason or convince myself, why did I do that? Why have I agreed to deal with death every day? It was a tremendous, tremendous emotional roller coaster. But yeah. I also found the investigative uh, aspect of it uh, intriguing, and I think that's what I think that's what kept me going. Uh, you actually, as far as the investigative part, you kind of go into that a little bit in the book when you do talk about the 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 mints process, M I N T S process for determining the cause of death. Yes. Okay. Can you describe that a little bit? And like, what was the like? Why did you inc- include that in the book? Oh, 40, 45% of the cases we do are natural, a natural death. You know, they're not all, uh, you know, like murder. And I mean, we don't use the word murder, homicide, suicide, or undetermined. And so we spent a significant time trying to find out or wanting to know why people died naturally, you know, the ones that are. Uh, that are beaten, you know, we, we, we can, we just find the, you know, what the lethal blow or those that were shot, gunshot wounds, stab wounds, the same thing. But it's a little bit more challenging when, uh, when a person goes to sleep at night and it's simply don't wake up. And one of the things that I coin, and it's probably not original, but, but um, <laughs> Someone used to say, if it's new, if it's new, it's not true. So maybe I arranged it that way. But when I do an autopsy on a case that looked like it's going to be a natural death, then I want to make sure that I have covered all my bases. So if someone dies naturally, well, if someone dies, period, Okay, mm-hmm. it's either metabolic, the M. There's something wrong with their metabolism, enzyme, enzymatic system. If they die of uh, because of a bacteria, it's, it's infection, the I. If they got cancer, it's neoplasia, the N. If it is trauma, be it self-induced or. Uh, inflicted by someone else, the T is for trauma, and the S is for systematic diseases, the collagen vascular diseases, and the rare things that that we need to take a look at. And it was primarily my way of making sure that I had gone through, systematically gone through everything that I believed that I could. Uh, my One of my chiefs used to call it doing the academic autopsy. And you approach every every case in this manner? Every case in the same manner. Well, you know, so, but if someone is, you know, you're looking at uh, five gunshot wounds, uh, you, you, you know, then you, you kind of right, that's you a little know different. where you're going. But if you get, you get uh, you know, body, you know, the, that's uh, uninjured, mm, you, okay. you almost, you're, you're obligated to go go through something like that. To you know, to try to uh, 
every once in a while, maybe in ten percent or less of less of the cases, you know, you, you can make the diagnosis at the table. But in most of the cases, ninety ninety five percent of the cases, you got to go to toxicology, histology, uh, and rest of the crime lab to try to put it together. I mean, in a systematic approach like that, I mean, that's a lot of forensic pathology deals with that as well as just, you know, general pathology lab medicine. There's a lot of, you know, systems thinking, I, I, I think. There is, you know, it's such a huge uh, discipline. Um, you have to, do you know that, you know, just take blood banking, for example, you know, the field I love. There are people who devote their entire careers to just doing blood bank and yes. keeping up with the literature, uh, microbiology. These are huge fields. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm beginning to think that maybe it's a misnomer. And I think that we're getting up. I think we've gotten away from it, you know, just saying I'm a general pathologist. Most people say, well, I'm a surgical pathologist with, uh, in my case, subspecialty uh, blood bank that was before I went into forensics. So if the group knows that everybody can, you know, read slides, if not, you pass them to the person that's most knowledgeable and you agree with the diagnosis. But what else can you bring to the table, you know, that supports the group? When I left Howard University and joined the Heartland Health System group, it had nothing to do with surgical pathology. That was a given. They want they were looking for someone to take the responsibility and the leadership for their blood bank. And on that basis, I joined them. Like we said earlier, the book is about your life. It's kind of your autobiography. But throughout the story, the in like sort of interspersed in your stories, you include some other stories of prejudice and just flat out racism from the history of this country from all parts of of our history and there's one in particular the Tulsa massacre of 1921 now when i was re this is an interesting coincidence when i was reading the book uh, and i got to that point a friend of mine was actually in Tulsa for the i guess it's it's the 100th anniversary of that event Mm -hmm. And and he was there, and he he showed me pictures of the the people there, and there's murals of you know Black Wall Street and 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 things like that. So it was it was very interesting, and I'd never heard of this story. It seems like including these stories in the middle of your life story, it kind of contrasted sort of your struggle and success with other people's struggle and not not being so successful to put it mildly what uh, was that was that the point am i interpreting that right yes uh, you you're right on in the there was also an attempt to say and to demonstrate and to to depict you know that i came out of the 1960s mississippi fire hose uh German Shepherd Dogs, Billy Clubs. Uh -huh. But the point I wanted to leave, uh, to make with the readers, is that the struggle isn't over. Right. Okay. We, we, it, it, it appears that we have always, as far as I can go back, we've been in the struggle, and the struggle continues today. It's uh, sobering to think that 100 years after the Tulsa massacre, these kind of things are still happening. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, and near the end of the book, it's like actually right at the end of the book, there's a quote that says, through education and community, we can break out of the ghettos, both physical and mental, to which we have been assigned. I was able to do so not because I was a hero or a trailblazer, but because others understood that when one of us succeeds, the possibility for others to exceed increases exponentially. Can we talk about that uh, that quote there? What, what did you mean by that? I think what I was wanted to convey there is, 
you, let's take my my family for example. My mother was not allowed to go to school beyond the eighth grade. There was no no school for people of color. My father, same thing. My father spent just a short uh, tenure with the United States Marine Corps and went to my high school at night and finished high school. I'm one of seven siblings. And I told you earlier that it, it would be rare for us to know anyone in the small town of Centerville, Mississippi that had gone to college Mm-hmm. except the teachers who came in from Louisiana. So I became the first when Mr. Hicks, Coach Hicks carried me to Utica Junior College. I became the first person in the, in the Posey family to go to, to go to college. When I got over to Alcorn, we called it agricultural and mechanical college at the time. Now it's Alcorn, Alcorn State University. When I got there, again, uh, because of the help that I had received, I, I knew a little bit of how the system was. I thought I knew. So I called my sister next to me, and I told her to come on out, and I could help her. I know how to do it. She called her sister behind her. She called her sister behind her. The next sister called her sister. The third sister called my brother Randy, and for like eighteen years there was a posy on the on the campus. Mister Hicks, Coach Hicks, and Coach Page moved our family out of. I have children who have children who's going to college because of Coach Hicks. Wow! The discussion in our family now is not. And not even the the discussion in the family, it has nothing to do about going to college anymore. The questions that come up usually is, do I have to go to the local college or am I going away? Mm, Okay. Okay. And just that example, just that example in my family alone is responsible. We got, we have doctors, lawyers, teachers, accountants, psychologists. So just in my family alone, my initiative being able to reach back and then my three sisters reaching back. Okay. And then mm-hmm. my youngest sister reaching to get my brother and then our children. Because of our examples, you know, we're going. Man, if we if we if we could bottle that and sell it, that that's what I want. That's what I want. That's my ideal. Just within your own family, you, you're already showing the the exponential increase of success. So you want you want to spread it out to the the general community. Is that that's what you're saying? That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's the idea. Okay, and that's that's part of your hope then of writing this book and sharing your story. That's what you're trying to do. Yes. And being willing to put myself out there on the line in front of whoever I can get in front of, to talk to them, to try to encourage them. Uh-huh. That's what from here on out and here on the end, um, that's what I want to do. Well, Dr. Posey, I, I really enjoyed your book. It was, it was fascinating. It was very eye opening for me. And I've recommended it to a few people already. And I really appreciate you coming on the show, uh, talking about your book, talking about your life story. So uh, thank you very much. And then lastly, I'd like to give a tip of the hat to my editor, John Bravito. Oh, okay. Okay. I appreciate you, man. Great. Big thanks to Dr. Douglas Posey. Here's a preview of the next episode of the People of Pathology podcast featuring pathologist assistant student, Alexandra Giardina. You didn't didn't go to PA school right away after college, did you? No, no. So right out of college, I 
I took a job in the biobanking field. And so uh, there was a research technician position uh, that was posted for Tulane University. And I started as a biorepository technician. And that is really how I discovered pathologist assistant because I was having to consent patients and uh, get tissue and go to the pathology department to get like normal and tumor tissue. And that's where I discovered, you know, some of the PAs working in the gross room. And I was like, wow, this is this is a really interesting field. Like, I, I, I really enjoy this. How did I never know that this existed? And so that's kind of like where my uh, my role in pathologist assistant came from. OK, that's a that's a good point, too. I mean, that's a problem because people don't hear about our field. You know, that needs to change. And that's the same with other lab careers as well. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people and, and a lot of them say, you know, I didn't hear about this field until I got into it or, you know, I accidentally happened upon it or someone happened to mention it to me. Yeah, it's crazy. And so um, it, it's really something that needs to change. I wish that we had more outreach programs in undergraduate and actually in high schools that we could, you know, go to high schools, go, go to some of these uh, medical association groups and kind of like, you know, put out for our profession what we what we do. Tune in next week to hear more from Alexandra Giardina. So again, Dr. Posey's book is called From Mississippi to the Morgue, A Black Doctor's Journey from Rural Mississippi to Forensic Pathology. I'll have a link in the show notes if you'd like to pick up the book. I really enjoyed it. Dr. Posey's a great storyteller, and his story is both interesting and inspiring. And speaking of inspiring, I recently heard from Dr. Marianne Hamill, who you might remember from episode 49, and she told me that someone reached out to her after listening to that episode and was asking about career advice and how to get into forensic pathology. I really like this story because that's exactly what I'm trying to do with this podcast. I'm trying to inspire others to look at these careers for themselves. So thanks again to Dr. Hamill. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find the show on Twitter at People of Path, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Or if you'd like, you can just go to peopleofpathology.com. There are links to Twitter and LinkedIn, and you can also listen to all the episodes there too. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. I really appreciate that. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.